This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Charlotte Zitlow. She is a Bloomington institution. Hi, Charlotte. Thanks for being on Thank the show. You. My pleasure. Well, now, Charlotte was a leader of a revolutionary gang here in Bloomington in 1971. She was elected to the city council that year, and that big election changed the nature of this city. Mm -hmm. Now, just for a little bit of background, college towns and Bloomington being one, very traditionally back in those days were run by Main Street Republicans, real estate men, insurance men, the grocer, the hardware store owner, the department store manager, a key word being men. Too. Yes, yeah, totally. <laughs> Republicans. Then 1971, uh, Bloomington had an election which overturned that paradigm. Yes. How did the town flip? Well, there were a whole number of reasons. Of course, the, the the demography of the town had switched dramatically within ten years or so because the university was growing rapidly. It went from ten to thirty thousand students very quickly, and with that came new faculty new staff, lots and lots and lots of uh, construction workers because there was a tremendous amount of building going on. So union people. Yeah, union, and they were union. And so they, the, the nature of the population had changed, uh, and the faculty especially and the, sp and the staff that came into town came from different places with different expectations. And Bloomington was, you know, situated in a beautiful place in Indiana, one of the few beautiful places in Indiana, but really nice. And, but it had uh, it was a sleepy, pokey town. The, there wasn't a whole lot of energy in the downtown, almost none in the in the retail business that was perceptible. It was very comfortable. The people who were in charge had been in charge forever. They ran the United Way and they ran the Chamber of Commerce and they ran the churches. And they, life was the way it had been in the 50s and even in the 60s, despite the changes that were taking place around it. When I came to Bloomington, I, I had been brought up in the northern part of the country, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and I was coming from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And one of the things that just hit me immediately was that outside the, main, the core area of the town, there were no sidewalks. Oh. There were no sidewalks, there were no curbs, gutters, no no storm sewers. There, it just looked like a little old country town. An honest-to-gosh small town. Yeah, and there was an enormous amount of residential uh, construction going on as well as on campus. But uh, there was no provision for sidewalks. And, and we live with that today. We live with that today. We are still retrofitting. Mm -hmm. I live two, I live a block from campus, basically. I have no sidewalk. Right. And uh, I have. There's no way the stormwater can get away from my land, uh, because there's no provision for it. And uh, and down the street around the corner, it, there's a lot of flooding as a result of that. And we've had to do some retrofitting. We have to. It's. It was a very expensive mistake on, at the, that time. But we we were just beginning to. The community was just beginning to even consider planning 
and zoning, just beginning to, to do that. And the developers had a heyday. They just did whatever they felt like doing. You know, they were just buying. They were building and selling, building and selling. Very little restriction on Very that. little restriction. There were very, very little restriction. And a lot of the inner city uh, housing stock was uh, was being rezoned. Very nice house we looked on at at Fe- on Fess Avenue, just south of campus, was just a wonderful house. We'd love to buy it, but the uh, the builders, the real estate agent, told me, "Don't buy it because they're going to put an apartment building next door." I said, "There's a house next door." They said, "They're going to get that rezone, and tear it down, and um, build an apartment building there." You don't want to buy that house. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't buy the house. The apartment building was built, and then I became aware that that was happening over and over again in the core of the city. Changing the nature of the whole town. Changing the nature of the whole town. And I'm not sure that the people who were approving it willy-nilly, I mean, there was no discussion. There was That no, would be the city council. That would be the city council. They approved these rezones. Uh, with Basically, by title only, you, you want to rezone? Okay, you go and get it. You say yes, and then then they tear down the house and... And they put up these apartments with very few restrictions as to parking or drainage or green space, none at all. And you just look around town and you can see that today. We still have it. And many of us were finding that it's a shocking. Mm-hmm. You know, on top of the fact that, that the the construction that was going on already on the edge of town was unrestricted, this was just making it even worse. So it was making a rather nice, sleepy town, comfortable, sleepy town into a kind of messy, sleepy town. Mm-hmm. And we didn't, many of us found that unwelcome. Uh, then, of course, we also were looking for amenities. We were looking for some energy, and we could see that housing code was very limited and not very very well enforced. Small units were being jammed into larger houses. That's right. If, if houses remained, larger houses remained, they were carved into little little apartments, and we'd known that in Ann Arbor, too. We understood what that was. And so it was just changing the nature of the center and as well as the edge of town and making it no, not any more pleasant to live, on the contrary. So there were lots of things going on. But the worst thing that was happening, we thought, and this, this all came to to an end of the 60s. Yeah. So in the 60s, we had the civil rights movement, right. and we had the Vietnam War protests. And yeah. while Bloomington wasn't... Um, wasn't a hotbed of controversy. We did definitely have protests, and we had a lot of anti-Vietnam feeling here in the community, and there was a lot of tension between the sort of many of the permanent residents and many of the students, and the faculty was divided. We had we had very strong members of the SDS and the faculty, huh. or, or adherents to the Port yeah. Huron philosophy, who felt universities should be the the the, the cradle of a revolution right. and that some of some faculty members felt that other faculty members should not teach poetry or history or biology but revolution and there were, that created a great deal of tension yeah. that together with the increasing awareness of the need for better more civil rights in this town which which is basically in many ways a southern town yeah uh, so there was that going on. There was a women's women's movement. Almost all of the new faculty were men, of course, and they brought spouses with them. And there was very little place for the, them to find 
employment that would utilize their skills or the wives, yeah. The wives. The wives as a result ended up being the uh the salvation in a way to the community by creating organizations like Planned Parenthood and yeah. Stonebelt and the Community Service Council. You yourself were a faculty wife. Your husband Yes was newly arrived what year? In nineteen sixty four. We came here in sixty four from Ann Arbor. Uh we I'd been uh, we'd been politically active there starting in the Kennedy campaign on the precinct level, just knocking on doors, and we're aware of it. We came down in 1964, which was a presidential election of Lyndon Johnson and uh, against Goldwater. Indiana was a mixed state at the time. We had two really extraordinary United States senators, and um, uh, Birch Bayh and Vance Hartke. Right. And Vance Hartke was one of the early... Um, opponents of the Vietnam War, it which was it, amazing. himself an enemy uh, of Lyndon Johnson, that's yes. for sure. Yes, and, and of many Hoosiers as well. Yeah. Uh, so that, that we were politically active, and I was pregnant seven months, and yet I was used to knocking on doors in an election, and I went out into the, into the, to the hills and the hollers and knocked on mobile homes and found out that many people didn't know who Lyndon Johnson was, or Kennedy, or John, or Washington, or Lincoln? No kidding. Uh, yeah, and the, when I asked them which president, which of those presidents they might might be their favorite, they couldn't think of who it might be except maybe Kennedy. Wasn't he the one who got shot? <laughs> you know, so I was walking up and down gravel roads yeah. in my seven months pregnancy, and learning a lot about. Monroe County, and, and where I was in, in the world, in, in the United States, which was quite different from being in Minnesota and Wisconsin and, and Michigan. Wasn't there an incident in a dog and suds? Yes, that was, uh, Nathan was born in September. and Of 64. Of 64, and I had a daughter, Rebecca, was a was, um, year and a half at the time, not a little bit more than that. But anyway, I took the kids out for lunch occasionally because I thought that was good for them, it was good for me. <laughs> but I didn't, we didn't go to fancy places. In this case, we went to Dog and Suds, which is where the Village Deli is now. And, um, and I took these little squirming babies <laughs> into this restaurant uh, and was seated and was immediately served. And I noticed that there was a couple at the next table, a black man and a white woman, and that they were had been there when we came in, and that they were really trying to get the attention of the waiter who was very, very clearly avoiding their advances. Mm-hmm. And I called the waiter over and I said, I think the people at that table need your service. He said, oh. He, he looked at them and he said, oh, I'll have to talk to the manager. I said, you don't have to talk to the manager, just... Sir, wait on him. Yeah. yeah. Well, no. He went to the kitchen. He came back, and you know, by that time, I didn't. I was feeling uncomfortable. I didn't want to embarrass them, right. but I also realized what was going on. Kind of like what? Yeah. So I, so I, I watched to see what was happening. Rebecca had finished her cheese sandwich, and and Nathan was, you know, sort of sitting in his infancy talking or something, and I. So I was just really alert to see what was going on and watching, and nothing happened. And finally, I called the waiter over, and I said, you know, I'm going to sit here until those people are served, and I, I don't want to make a fuss. I don't want to embarrass them. 
but I'm just going to sit here. And, and, and the children are going to sit here too. And if they start crying, we're still going to sit here. <laughs> and um, so they eventually got served, but the woman was in tears. Eventually they left, and then we left. And, and I went home and I called Marion Gottfried, who was the, a woman that I, one of the English department faculty wives who I felt knew what was going on in town. And I said, what's going on here? She said, Charlotte, you're in the South. I said, really? My gosh, I had no idea. She said, yeah, that's going to happen. And uh, I said, what can we do about it? She says, really, there's no, no place to go, no place to complain to. Yeah, there were no laws, so there were many, many things. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've written a book because I think this is a very critical moment in the history of Bloomington. And the book is about the election. And the book, the book is about the election, and it's and the first part of it is all the things that were going on in the '60s that culminated in 1970 and '71 that made it possible for us to really turn the politics of the community around. It was just one thing after another. So and, and wasn't wasn't the primary of nineteen sixty eight, the May primary yes. uh between Bobby Kennedy and Eugene McCarthy, that really caused a lot of trouble. Well the sixty eight the sixty eight primary really brought about the real change in if it changed the Democratic Party here. I should say the Democratic Party basically did not exist here. It was a really loose bunch of people, you know, pretty much Southern in its in its approach. Uh, nice people, but you know, tend, tended to be more conservative than Democrats where I came from. Don't uh, rock the boat. Yeah. But, of course, there was a huge anti-war feeling, and in this town, very strong. And McCarthy came out first after the New Hampshire primary and was very strong and he seemed to be the anti-war candidate. Right. And Bobby Kennedy of course was was there as a possible candidate but he was reluctant to run. Yeah. Except he did. He, he did. did. Late he, in the game. Yes, and he decided just in time to be the opponent of McCarthy in in Indiana. Right. And so this was the the but the proving ground of whether or not Bobby Kennedy had any support. And what the question was, you know, of course the McCarthy people were furious with him right. because they thought he cheated by saying he wouldn't and now he would. He said, you know, there's more, I am really against the war, I've always been against the war, but beyond that I'm really strong on civil rights and, and a whole bunch of other things, unions and so forth. Uh, and I think that that was the message that got got through eventually. So he came to Indiana and um, campaigned. And in Bloomington, it was it was really tense here because the pe- most of the people we knew supported McCarthy, and my my husband and I were also went, thought we should give Bobby Kennedy a good look and see what he's what he's doing and what he's saying and what he could do. Uh, that created enormous tension for us personally between us and friends, and we actually lost friends because eventually we did both of us vote Not for. Not between you and Paul, your no, husband, yeah. but between the two of you and others. And uh, and others because we both individually came to the decision that we would vote for Kennedy. Yeah. Um, and and Kennedy carried the state. Right. There was a third candidate, and that was Roger Brannigan, who was the stalking horse for Humphrey. Right. Um, 
and he he did not carry the state. Mm-hmm. It was Kennedy, and then McCarthy, and then Humphrey. Now, then a month later, uh, Kennedy was killed. Yes. The Democratic Party, in its infinite wisdom, decided that they would allot the uh, the Kennedy delegates to go to the Democratic Convention to allot them to Brannigan. Well, that made everybody real, everybody really mad. Which was actually allotting them to Humphrey. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But which was, and it was, and by rights, and and we all agreed they should have gone to, to McCarthy. They should have yeah. gone to McCarthy. He was, he would have been. He would have been the candidate had Kennedy not been in the race. Yeah. So uh, that created such, well, it created an awareness. How does this happen? Who's the Democratic Party anyway? How do they do things? What are the rules? And all of a sudden, lots of people who had never paid attention to party politics tried to figure out how this was, how this worked. And how it worked was that we elect in, in Indiana, we elect precinct committeemen every four years. Yeah. And that was coming up in '70. And by golly, there was a huge move to replace all the Democratic precinct committeemen in Monroe County with new people. And and uh, there was a very concerted effort, and it was a door-to-door effort, and, and that was co- in contrast to the, the sort of existing Democratic Party, which really didn't do much at all because they didn't see this coming. And so... We, my husband and my family and I were in Czechoslovakia that year, which is another story, but it all plays a role in, in my life. And when we came back, this uh, spring precinct election had taken place, and we had a new Democratic Party in town. Well, you had been in Czechoslovakia right after the Prague Spring and the crushing yes, of it by yes, the Warsaw Pact yeah. countries. It showed you how it's, valuable... What we had here was. And how fragile. You know, we left the United States in 1960, in the summer of 1969, to go to Czechoslovakia when there were tanks in the street in Prague. And uh, so anyway, we went and the tanks were gone by the time we got there. But in any case, the screws were tightening. You right. know, the the communists were really cracking down on the other communists who had run that. were being pulled in for questioning. And, and, and purges were beginning yeah. to take place. And we, we were with, we knew people, well, my husband was with the faculty at the university in Bratislava, and they were all members of the Communist Party because communists in in uh, Czechoslovakia comprised 20% of the population, the absolute highest percentage of any uh, country in the Eastern Bloc, yeah. so they'd been loyal. They they'd been loyal communists. They hated the Nazis. They had experienced the Nazis, and so they were very strongly anti-Nazi. And they were communists, but they were totally disillusioned. And the Prague Spring was the socialism with the human face. That was their model. But, Alexander but it, Dubček. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we understood, and and there was a, the, the, I wouldn't say it was a law. The prevailing rule at the time was that you could not say anything negative against the government right? in a group of two or more. Well, now everybody used us as their sounding board, (laughs) telling us how terrible everything was because we were Americans and we could take it. Um, And they trusted us for some reason. But there we were, and, and we listened to the Voice of America, which had recurring commentary and negative commentary about the policies that the Nixon administration was pursuing yeah. in Southeast Asia. 
and and thinking this is a government run radio station and we can still we can still say negative things in our country and get by with it and not end up disappearing you know i came back very convinced okay i had been wanting to teach at the university and for a number of reasons i i could not uh, get a a real job at the university despite my pretty good degree from the university of michigan well uh, yeah a phd in <laughs> yeah. linguistics yes yeah. yeah. So I decided I would just become politically active, preserve the democracy. Yeah. When we came back, this whole this whole brouhaha had happened. We had new Democratic Party. We had we we had a pretty solid um, understanding of a lot of people that that we needed civil rights, that we didn't need the war. You know that we did need to give give uh, room for women to work, and a number of other things. And somebody asked me, "Why don't you run this precinct where you live, which included much of the campus?" And I said I would do that. And I we or, I got some students to help organize the campus, and we carried we got almost a thousand votes for Hartke, who carried the state by less than four thousand votes. Wow! So he needed our votes here. Yeah, you bet. And that was recognized. And so the county chair came to me and said, have you ever thought of running for city council? I said, absolutely not. I know, I know nothing about that. And he said, you go to the city council meeting and and um, and just, just look at it and see. Okay. So I went to the city council meeting. There had been, there was a big issue here. The downtown churches wanted to build a high-rise senior citizen center on Kirkwood. Right near the sample gate, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so there wasn't any property available immediately, but there was a real effort. The then a big chunk of land came available at the eastern end of the block, Kirkwood and Dunn, between yeah. for between Kirkwood and Forest Street. And uh, the city said, "We will buy that land," and the mayor borrowed some money from the utilities bank account, which was illegal, yeah. illegal. and uh, But we didn't have a full-time city attorney, and apparently he forgot to ask. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so there was a big brouhaha about this whole thing. The churches, some of them were adamant. One of the ways to pay for the for that high rise was to have been uh, through parking meter uh, revenues and parking meters were being set up through the residential area around there. Huh. This did not set well either with the residents, needless to say, and that was supposed to help pay for the land and put the mayor in rather a negative position. It did change the nature of the Republican uh, uh, run for mayor. So yeah. he won the primary by 38 votes, I think. But people were upset about all this, and they wanted to express their upsetness at the council meeting. And I went to the council meetings, and, and people were waving their hands to get the attention of the white men who walked in from the mayor's office where they laid their coats, and and they had gotten their marching orders, and they marched in, and they said yes by title only, and people waved and waved and tried to get their attention, and nobody paid attention. And I thought, gosh, I could do better than this. <laughs> I decided to run for, for city council. And so did eight other people. And Frank McCloskey was persuaded. He was uh, taking the bar exam that summer, but he was persuaded to consider running for mayor. And there were two major, 
major organizations that were nonpartisan, uh, the Voters Union and the Citizens for Good Government, which were organizing in their ways also to bring more attention to the issues right. that, that were of concern to people. And getting people involved. And getting people involved. And so ultimately the theme of our campaign was getting people involved, citizen participation. People should be able to be heard. They should be listened to. They should be included in the government, and I believe that strongly. So that was my motivation, and it turned out to be the motivation of the other candidates as well. It was it unified us, and, and although none of us knew each other to start with, we were a we were a very motley crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we got along well. We agreed to work as a team, and and we worked really hard to go up and down the streets, up and down the streets throughout the city. Very strong uh, penetration of the west side as well as the east side. We had really wonderful, wonderful, wonderfully diverse uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. And the 1970 election, which was a countywide election and, and township trustees, Ernie Butler, who was the uh, minister at Second Baptist Church, had been elected township trustee. That was a major breakthrough. He was African-American, that that was the first, and he was a Democrat, that was also a first for that trustee's position. He was very outspoken in his his, uh, belief in including people. Uh He was a major ally, of course, in the uh, the city election. And so we had the the African-American community, which goes way back in Bloomington, and really was Republican coming at the time of the of the Civil War, right? You know, uh, many of them joined us in that in that campaign. It was really wonderful. So we worked throughout the town very hard. We talked about issues, and it was so unlikely that we would win because we were clearly who knew who are these people? This outsiders. Uh, yeah, we were totally outsiders. We were neophytes. We knew nothing. We had no experience. I had been involved in a number of community projects myself and some of the others had too and some of them hadn't but we were all we knew what was going on in daily life in Bloomington we knew that the streets needed work we knew that we needed sidewalks we knew we needed housing code enforcement we knew that we needed uh, more protection for civil rights we knew uh, that that we needed um well, we didn't know that we needed historic preservation, but it was pretty obvious to us, and it was made very obvious very quickly. And we were very early to 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 create a historic preservation. Uh, were there even buses? No, and we knew we needed mass transit. We knew we needed, we knew we needed ambulances. We didn't have ambulances. The police were carting people around in squad cars, in station wagons. Yeah, I mean, really. Um, there was a lot. There was a lot that needed to be done, yeah. and these people that we ran against told people how they were, you know, old, old. They were from Bloomington. They'd lived here forever. Their grandmas and grandpas were here, and you know, they ran the United Way and they ran their churches, and uh, they were wonderful people. And we said, "Yeah, but you haven't done anything about this, 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 and this," and uh, we won. We won. Charlotte Zitlow is the grand dame of uh, Bloomington politics. Thanks so much for being on Big Talk. Thank you very much. Thank you.